Biblical readiness for marriage. What does that look like for women? Friends, that's the subject for our consideration this morning. I want to talk about how women ought to think about this subject and in this way, prepare for marriage in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. So if you're new this morning, we're in a, in a series called Biblical Readiness for Marriage. Now, last week we considered what it looks like uh, for men, and uh, this morning we will think about what it looks like for women. Now, this doesn't mean that if you are not a woman, uh, this sermon will be of no benefit to you. Now, while my intention is to mainly address the single women and widows who desire to be married, I trust that if you're a single man who desires to be married, this sermon will help you identify Christ-like qualities in a potential spouse. If you are a father, this will help you shepherd your daughter towards, greatly, towards greater godliness. If you are a wife, this will help you identify areas in your own life where change is needed. Or it may cause your heart to erupt in thankfulness for evidences of grace that you do see in your own life. Beloved, I trust that God's word is always profitable for all his people. And I pray that he will equip you today to do his will for his glory. So as we look to God's word together, let's ask the Lord for his help, that we would trust in him, submit to him, and delight in him. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would now rescue us from our self-centeredness and our insecurities, our wandering thoughts, and our fears. Show us the glory of your Son, that we may gaze upon his beauty and find refuge in his wisdom, his power, and his love alone. Be glorified in the midst of your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Sisters, I want to hold out the mirror of God's word to you today to help you assess whether your thinking and your feelings about this particular topic have been shaped by the cultures of this world or by Christ. So, what is the constant message that you have been hearing from your colleagues, from family members, from the movies you watch, the books you read, and the social media platforms that you are on? What are you hearing from your well-meaning but sadly mistaken Christian girlfriends? Yes, I'm talking about even those friends from like-minded churches here in the UAE. Deepak Reju, in his book, Why Smart Women Settle, writes this. He says, our culture's message to single women is that their happiness matters more than anything else. Have you bought into this happiness mentality by thinking, if it makes me happy, it must be right? Or... Surely God wouldn't want me to be miserable. Reju then introduces us to a woman who is single and lonely, and this seems to be the constant refrain of her heart. If only I had a man. If only I had a man, I'd be happy. If only I had a man, I'd be able to have children. If only I had a man, I'd have someone to be intimate with. If only I had a man... I'd have a beautiful home. If only I had a man, I'd have a future. 
If only I had a man, I'd feel more secure in life. If only I had a man, I wouldn't have to make decisions on my own. If only I had a man, I wouldn't have to go to weddings or do grocery shopping by myself. If only I had a man, I'd have someone to rely on when I'm sick or old. If only I had a man, I'd have someone to help me when I'm worried. If only I had a man, I wouldn't be so lonely. Sisters, does this sound like the refrain of your hearts? As though your joy, your satisfaction, your refuge lies in finding a man, a husband. And if you do, all will be well. well if that's your thinking, then I fear that you're laying up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. You may also unknowingly have rewritten the Westminster Catechism. You remember the first question, what is the chief end of man? In this case, woman. It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But if this is where your heart is, it's reciting a different catechism. Culture has now catechized you to say, the chief end of woman is to find a husband and enjoy yourself forever. No, dear sister, your calling as a Christian woman is to glorify your Savior. It is to make much of Him, to delight in Him, to abide in His word. Remember that you have died with Christ and your life is hidden in Him. That's Colossians 3.13. You can only know true joy and true contentment in Him. So treasure Christ. You were made for this purpose. You see, marriage cannot carry the weight that you want to put on it. Only Christ can. Marriage is a temporary institution for this age. It's meant to be a picture, a parable that points us to a person. The person of Jesus Christ and his love for his church. So grow in your love for your Savior and get to know him better. Look closely at him. Look closely at him and his love for his church and you will learn to recognize what a good picture of him looks like, a good marriage, and what a poor picture of him looks like, a bad marriage. And so I'm going to say to you similar things that I said to our single men. A desire to marry is a good thing, but it should never be the goal. The glory of God is the goal. Your chief aim is to grow in Christ's likeness, to know Christ, to treasure Him, to enjoy Him. So you can start getting ready for marriage by not getting ready for marriage. By taking your eyes off marriage and instead pursuing Christ-likeness, by learning what it means to be a Christian woman who understands that her identity is in Christ and that she is called to live spiritually, to thrive spiritually in a believing community, in a local congregation. Sisters, what you need spiritually in order to be a Christian wife and mother, God equips you as a Christian woman. It is your saving relationship with Christ that prepares you for your covenant with your future husband. But don't strive for Christ-likeness just because you want a spouse. Don't let that be your motive. That's a sinful pursuit. The goal is not marriage. The goal ought to be the glory of God. If you understand that the aim of your life is to please God, glorify God, then you will think about marriage rightly, and you'll have a different set of criteria for a husband. You will start to think, who can I marry? Who can I say yes to 
who will lead me in glorifying God better. You see, marriage is about being a helper to that man who is already on that mission to glorify God. Let me say that again. Marriage is about being a helper to that man who is already on that mission to glorify God. And so as you heard last week, readiness is not about perfection. Biblical readiness is the pursuit of evident Christ-likeness in the body of Christ that will enable a woman to thrive in a Christian marriage to the glory of God. Biblical readiness is the pursuit of evident Christ-likeness in the body of Christ that will enable a woman to thrive in a Christian marriage to the glory of God. So here are four areas that you as women ought to think rightly about and pay regular attention to in order to prepare yourselves, in order to be biblically ready. Again, uh, like last week, there's so much more that can be said, but I'm not preaching to the world I'm preaching to you. As your pastor who loves you, here are four areas, important areas, that I think you ought to think carefully about. So number one, think rightly about your identity. Think rightly about your identity. Sisters, you are who God says you are. You need not be confused about your identity because you have a loving Heavenly Father who made you. You are women, not men. You are daughters, not sons. You are not an afterthought. You are God's beautiful creation and you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, that is something to know, to meditate on, and rejoice in. Listen to how the psalmist speaks of God's creative work. Psalm 139, verses 14 to 16. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Does that sound like an afterthought to you? Turn with me now to Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Here's God's purpose for you. Then God said, let us make man or mankind in our image after our likeness. And let them, underline that, them, let them have dominion or rule over what? over everything, over all creation. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 28, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Over what? Over everything. You see, women often fail to realize that this passage is not just for men. It also speaks to what God has called them to and blessed them to do as women. Sisters, you are made in God's image, in His likeness. Just as the man bears God's image, you bear His image equally and uniquely. To bear His image means you were created 
to glorify him. Godly femininity or womanhood is not about putting yourself on display. It's about putting God on display. He made women to be covenantal creatures, to trust and obey his word. But the very first woman whom God created for his glory turned aside from the beauty and the security of his word to what she thought was beautiful in her own eyes. You see, sin is what happens when you turn away from God's beautiful word and you rely on your own understanding. Look at Genesis 3, 1 to 6. Genesis 3, 1 to 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see, this is the pathology of any temptation. This is how it progresses. Step one, you are tempted to question the wisdom of God's word. You are lured away from the rock-solid foundation of God's word. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Step 2, you start to downplay the seriousness of sin and its consequences. Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Step 3, there's an appeal to your idolatrous desires. In this case, questioning God's good intentions. He doesn't want you to be happy. So take things into your own hands. You decide what's right and wrong apart from God's word. You know what's good for you. Yay, woman's empowerment. Do what feels good to you. Verse 6, so here's step 4. You start reasoning from your own insights, and then you give in to temptation. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, useful, so it must be harmless, and that it was a delight to the eyes, attractive, appealing, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, it looked promising, full of potential. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Sisters, let me ask you, how many times have you said yes to something just because it was useful, attractive, and it looked promising? How many times have you said yes to someone because he seemed useful, attractive, and promising. Sisters, you were not made to be independent from God, but to be dependent on his word. Let his word instruct you on what it means to be his daughter. See, God's daughters are not meant to be self-indulgent princesses, but women of the word. Strong women of the word. Our Heavenly Father does not give in to our every whim and fancy. No, He tells us what's good for us. And departing from that is disastrous. Because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, 
sin entered into our world, and because of our sin, all of mankind stands under God's holy judgment. Every woman and every man is born into this world a sinner by nature, and we live our lives rejecting the beauty and the wisdom of God's word, while at the same time chasing after what we think is beautiful, not realizing that what we're chasing is not beautiful, it's not true beauty, but it's ugly and self-destructive. But when you read the rest of Genesis 3, we find out that God's wisdom, His mercy, and His love is greater than our sin and more powerful than our sin. Our sin does not take Him by surprise. Even before the fall, God created Eve from Adam's side and united them together in the first marriage. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.32 that God did that to give us a picture of His saving love that was to come. He did that to give us a portrait of Christ's love for his bride, his church. And so true enough, after the fall, God in his great mercy promised Adam and Eve that he would send a savior, born of a woman, to save us from our sin and destroy the works of the devil. You see, the first Adam failed in his mandate. He stood by passively while his wife was catechized by Satan. And then he blamed the woman for his failure. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, came into our world, fulfilled his mandate, and as the head of his new creation, he took the blame. He took the blame and bore our judgment so that sinners could be forgiven and truly know God. Friends, this is the good news that saves us. And this should be the starting point for everything that we are called to do. To remember that even though that we have rejected God's word and turned to our own ways, in his great love, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, in the flesh, who died on the cross as a substitute for our sin, taking the ugliness of our sins upon himself so that those who repent of their sins and put their trust in him can be forgiven and be clothed with the beautiful robes of his obedience, with the beautiful robes of his righteousness as a free gift of grace. After three days, Jesus rose from the dead so that we could be given new life, so that we could be awakened to see the ugliness of our sins and see the beauty of saving grace. So if you are here this morning as someone who does not know Christ as your Savior, Friend, let me urge you to turn away from your sins. Turn away from your, from your understanding of what you think is right and wrong. Agree with God's assessment of you, that you are a sinner who deserves God's judgment, and turn to Christ. Put your trust in Him. Turn to Christ and be saved from the wrath to come. Sisters, to be a Christian woman is to know what is truly beautiful. To know Christ, the King, in all his beauty, and to be enraptured with his beautiful voice in the scriptures. To know his word, to trust in it and obey it, is to grow in holiness. It's to become more Christ-like. Sisters, God says to you in his word that in him, listen carefully, in Christ you are loved with an everlasting love. In Christ you are safe and secure. In Him you are nourished and cherished. In Him you have a glorious future. He is always with you. He delights in you. His banner over you is love. And He calls you His beloved. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And not even death can separate you from Him. You don't need someone to complete you. 
you're complete in Christ. If you're captivated by his splendor and beauty, then you will find Christ's likeness attractive. Sisters, here lies your identity as a Christian woman. You belong to Jesus. You belong to him. As a member of his body, you have been baptized into his corporate bride. He has adopted you into the family of God. You are a member of God's family. And you have many spiritual brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. You know, sometimes I think that term, single woman, perhaps doesn't serve you well. If you understand that term to simply mean unmarried, that's fine. But if that term makes you feel like you're alone, then remember that you're not single in that sense. In the body of Christ, you have brothers, you have sisters and fathers and mothers. Your identity is in Christ. Your identity and security is not found in marriage, nor is it found in motherhood, but it's found in Christ. You are his disciple. So let me ask you this. Would people in this congregation describe you as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Someone who is growing in the knowledge of Christ. Do you regularly read his word? When was the last time that you read through the entire Bible? Or maybe even the new, entire New Testament? How much of your time during the week is dedicated to studying the word and praying. Are you growing in Christ-like love? And sisters, may I remind you what Christ-like love is? It is a self-denying love. It is an inconvenient love. It is a self-giving love. If the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, are you growing in your desires to love what He loves? Or are you a worldly woman walking around with lots of Christian makeup. You say all the right things, you move in the right circles, but you don't love and serve the Lord's blood-bought people. And holiness seems boring to you. If you're not serving the body of Christ, even when it's inconvenient, and it takes a lot out of you, think with me. How will you deny yourself and love a husband or even your future children? Remember that childbearing and child rearing are very hard and demanding. It will require you to die to yourself every day for the well-being of another, to inconvenience yourself for the nourishing of another. Isn't that what it means to be a Christian? So do you agree with what God's word says about how Christian women are called to live? Or are you secretly a feminist who devalues manhood and morality and motherhood and marriage? Sisters, are you growing as a Christian? You know, God has not given a, a blue great commission to men and a pink great commission to you. It's the same commission in Christ. Are you making disciples? Even if you do get married and have children, that still remains your charge as a member of your church to make disciples. First of your children, if God chooses to give you little people as a gift, and to make disciples of all nations. And if that is the case, do you know how to do that? Have you seen it done? 
Who's discipling you? You Paul tells Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine to older women who are in turn to teach younger women, Titus 2.4. So are you being discipled by an older, mature, married woman, woman? Are you learning to fight the good fight of faith? Do you regularly make war against your sin, knowing that in Christ you are no longer slaves to sin, but heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ? That's Romans 8.17. Are you more concerned about what the world thinks of you? What your friends on Facebook or Instagram may think? Or are you more concerned about what your heavenly Father thinks? Your Father who has adopted you into His household through the blood of His Son. The one who has given you eternal life in Christ. Sisters, do you look for significance in your external appearance? Or do you pursue the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit? Do you pursue a humble, biblically informed, self-controlled heart that fears God and desires to obey Him? You know, if you don't find your joy and your security and contentment in the Savior now, you will only multiply your discontentment in marriage. Number two, think rightly about the role of a Christian wife. Think rightly about the role of a Christian wife. Scripture teaches us that men and women are equal in worth and value and dignity. But God in His great wisdom has created men and women differently. Now, it's no surprise that we are physically different, anatomically different, but that's because God has called us to do different things. He has given us different roles and responsibilities in different spheres. Women are created with wounds, and men are not. You can grow little human beings inside of you. Have you ever thought how insane that is? That's amazing. Women are created with wombs and men are not. Now, this lack in men does not speak to their inferiority, but uniqueness in design and purpose. Men, on the other hand, tend to have a proportionately greater muscle mass and bone mass than men. This does not speak to inferiority in women, but it speaks to their uniqueness in design and purpose. In God's creation design, along with those physical differences, God has put in the necessary software that allows women to become, in His sovereign will, daughters and sisters and wives and mothers. In the same way, God has also put in the software that allows men to become, in His sovereign will, sons and brothers and husbands and fathers. See, God has given men and women different roles and responsibilities in different spheres, namely in the church and in the home, that reflect the nature and glory of God. And to diminish these unique God-given gifts is to mar the image of God, to not represent Him accurately. Now, why do I belabor this point? Because it should not surprise you that should you marry, you must not only demonstrate Christ-likeness broadly as a Christian woman by being kind and patient and long-suffering, and so must your husband. Both of you ought to do that to God's glory. All Christians ought to do that for God's glory. You demonstrate Christ-likeness broadly, but you must also demonstrate Christ-likeness more narrowly as a wife by being a helper suitable for him, by being submissive to your own husband as the church submits to Christ and by respecting him. And yet, 
those traits are nevertheless Christ-like traits that you can cultivate as a Christian woman in a believing community. So, what are those features of Christ-likeness that the Lord calls Christian women to demonstrate? This is good to know since you aspire to be a Christian wife. Firstly, we'll look at two passages. Firstly, in Genesis 2.18, after assigning Adam his commission, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. You see, a wife is meant to be a helper fit for her husband fit to help him in his mission to glorify God. Now, helper to our 21st century years doesn't sound like an important description. When we hear the word helper, we think of a manual laborer, uh, perhaps a maid or a servant. But that's not the way it's used in the Bible. The word helper is an exalted term. It's a lofty term. It's a term that God takes for himself. Azer or helper is one who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God fits that description, doesn't he? Azer is one who meets our needs. The Holy Spirit is described as the helper in John 14, 26. The wife as a helper is her husband's equal, but her role is complementary. She is a worthy counterpart in this God-glorifying mission. And so as Christian women who are not in Adam, but in Christ... As New Covenant believers, what is your mission? It is the Great Commission to be members in a church, to tell others about Jesus, to disciple one another in the obedience of faith, to love one another, to walk in wisdom and courage. In essence, to obey, to obey everything that Christ has commanded. But in short, glorify God. And so a wife can certainly be a helping hand, but to be a helper is not merely to be a helping hand. She is to be his helper, to be there for him in a unique way that no other Christian man or woman can, and to spur him on to greater faithfulness, greater godliness. A husband should be able to say on the last day, this woman that you gave me, she's the reason, she was the means by which I was able to be a God, good and faithful servant. So as a helper, you must be your husband's greatest influencer to spur him on to greater Christ-likeness. Turn with me to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, 10 to 12. Listen to how this wife is described. Proverbs 31, 10 to 12. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. So sisters, do you know how to be a godly influence with your words and your actions? How are you being a helper in this sense to people around you? I'm not saying that you are called to be a helper to all men in the same way that a wife is called to be a helper to a husband. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that at the heart of being a helper, a suitable helper, lies this trait. 
this quality to be a godly influence and an encouragement to others. So are you growing in your ability to do that, to minister truth to others in the body? Are you growing in your ability to have hard conversations with other sisters and nourish them with the word? After spending time with you, would someone say, I feel greatly encouraged, spiritually refreshed after spending time with that sister? Would your elders say that about you? Or would they say that I think this woman would be a hindrance and not a helper to a godly Christian man? Here's the second passage. Secondly, a Christian wife is called to demonstrate Christ-likeness through submission and respect. Look at Ephesians 5, 22-24. Ephesians 5, 22-24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. However, let each one, verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul says that Christian wives, women who are filled with the Spirit, who desire to walk in faithfulness in marriage, ought to submit to their own husbands and respect them. This is the consistent apostolic mandate. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Then he says in 1 Peter 3, 5, For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Can you hear Peter's logic? Holy women are women who hope in God, who trust in God for their future. They adorn themselves. They have a hope-filled heart which manifests itself in holy behavior. This holy behavior is their decoration, so to speak. And how do they manifest this holy behavior? How? By submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good. Submission is good. And do not fear anything that is frightening. So how do you feel after hearing that? Well, submission is a good thing. We understand that theologically. But it's also a nerve-wracking thing, isn't it? After all, it's, it's wonderful for the church to submit to Christ because he's great, isn't he? He's perfectly loving and all-wise. There's no one like Jesus. Right? But Christian husbands are not Jesus. Right? Christian husbands are sinners. Sinners saved by grace. They are forgiven men. They ought to be striving to be Christ-like men by the power of the Spirit. But they're nevertheless flawed men. Their leadership will not be perfect. They will sin against you and they will sometimes make unwise decisions. But the Lord is calling wives to nevertheless trust in Christ, hope in God, and out of a love for Christ, obey and follow their husband's leadership. So sisters, as you think about marriage, let me ask you, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to do that? Now, biblical submission does not mean that you are required to submit to his headship and authority in sinful things. No, faithfulness would require you to say no to sin. Remember, you have a greater head who is not only your Lord, but also your husband's head. 
Biblical submission also doesn't mean that you have no say in any matter. No, remember, you are called to be his helper. So you do have lots to say. Be a godly influence. So discuss every matter. Be a wise and godly influence. But when all is said and done, submit to him. It glorifies Christ. You know, if you desire to marry a Christ-like man, then I have news for you. Most of the things that you will struggle with as a Christian wife, most of the things that you will struggle to submit to will be matters of preference and prudence. It won't be over doctrine. It will be matters of preference and prudence. And it will surprise you how much your sinful flesh will kick and scream. But take heart and call on your Savior who has given you a helper, the Holy Spirit, who will empower you to submit to your husband as you trust in God's beautiful word. Sisters, think about how your membership in the body of Christ prepares you for this. It prepares you for this. Paul tells us that if you put on the mind of Christ, this is what you must do. Philippians 2, 3 to 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests or her own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, you will not be able to submit to a husband for the glory of God if you have not made it a practice of knowing the word of Christ and learning to submit to it in hope. Sisters, be humble enough to ask an older Christ-like woman to regularly challenge you on this. Would she say that you are quick to recognize your sin and submit to Christ? Or would she characterize you as stubborn and opinionated? Would she say that you are teachable, eager to learn in a spirit of submissiveness to the word? Or here's a better question. What would your father say about you? You know, God in his wisdom has given you a man in your life already. Your father. Even before he gives you a husband. If your dad is a godly Christian man, learn submission by submitting to his godly counsel. You know, would your pastors whom God has called you to submit to and obey, would they say that you are a submissive woman who loves Jesus? But what about respect? Respect is about having a reverence for your husband. It's about having a high regard for the position of authority and responsibility that God has placed on his shoulders. But it's also about having an appreciation of his accomplishments and spiritual progress. This means that the Christ-like quality that you must grow in is learning to discern and recognize what godly authority looks like and also cultivating a heart of gratitude and honor for all that that authority accomplishes by the grace of God. As women, the first male authority that God places over you is your father. So thank God for his leadership at home and tell him how much you appreciate how hard he works and provides. Tell him how much you value his life and ministry. Don't be vague, be specific. Thank him for all the ways that he has shepherded you. You don't have to flatter him. 
be truthful and honor him for the things he's done well. You know, I would encourage you to do that if you've never done that. You know, write him a respect letter or an email. You know, you can still do that if your dad is not a believer. Tell him you're thankful to God for him, for all that he has done well. Write a note of appreciation for spiritual fathers, perhaps for your elders for the way that they have discharged their duties well. Number three, think rightly about the home. Think rightly about the home. God has called Christian wives to subdue and exercise loving dominion mainly in the home. Mainly in the home. When you look at the Proverbs 31 woman, it was given to us as a description of a woman of wisdom, one who fears the Lord by trusting and obeying his word, you will notice that everything she does is done with her household and husband and children in view. It's amazing how many times that, that, that passage talks about husband and household and children. Look at Proverbs 31, verses 27 to 31. 27 to 31. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Her works speak for itself. You know, it's clear that this woman's priority is her home. Her heart is for her home. But in this passage, you will also notice she does go outside the home. She gets food and delivers merchandise outside, but she is home-centered. That's her base of operations. We see this domestic priority even in the New Testament. Look at Titus 2, 3 to 5. Titus 2, 3 to 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Train the young women to love. Train the young women to be self-controlled. Train the young women to be working at home. You know, if this training is important to Paul, sisters, it ought to be important to you. You know, I want to commend the single women in our congregation. I want to commend you for your eagerness to learn. Sisters, I love your passion for the word. You set a wonderful example for all of us. But, but this training ought to be part of your discipleship as well if you want to be married. This training is important if you love Jesus. Notice in the text, look at Titus 2, notice in the text that these women are to be trained. Why? Because this is what accords with sound doctrine. If you understand the gospel of Christ and desire to be submissive to his word, you will seek out this training. Why? Because grace has that effect on women. Look down at verse 12, Titus 2, 11 to 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, training us to announce ungodliness and worldly passions 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Train the young woman to be working at home. Beloved, when God gives specific commands to men and specific commands to women, I think we should pay attention. Jesus wants Christ-like women to be trained to prioritize the home and to be trained to work at home, to be well acquainted with the ins and outs of domestic work. Why? So that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, does this mean that it's a sin for a Christian wife to get a job outside the home? No, absolutely not. There may be times when this may be necessary. A husband may fall sick or become disabled. Surely, as your single women, it's wonderful to be working, to have jobs. Uh, there may be time uh, in, in your married life when a husband might lose the job and in order to make ends meet for a season, a wife might choose to work outside the home. But it's important as a married woman, as you think about marriage, as a married woman, when you're considering to work outside the home, that you examine your motives. Why? So that it can be done in faith. Ask yourself, do I want this job just to feel good about myself? Do I want this job to get a sense of purpose in the world? Do I want this job because I covet a particular lifestyle? You know, a, a career outside the home can pose challenges to faithfulness in the home. Let's say you observe a working wife. Let's call her Susie. We had Philip last week. We'll call this one Susie, right? After Susie gets home, her husband says to her, you know, it looks like the maid is parenting our children most of the time. You never serve at church because you're tired all the time. I hardly see you studying your Bible. It's been ages since we had a good home-cooked meal. You're always tired. You never have time for me. And our home looks like it's been hit by a hurricane. And if Susie says, but my heart is for the home. I'm working for my home. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? She thinks she's doing it for the home, but in reality... She's not doing it for God's glory because she has neglected to be faithful in the chief area that God has called her to be faithful. Again, don't get me wrong. It's not a sin to work outside the home. But it's crystal clear in the New Testament that because of her role as a wife and mother, God has called a Christian wife to focus on the home for His glory. There's that asymmetrical focus on the home. It's not there for the man. So ask yourself, if you consider working outside the home after you've examined your motives, you know, will this job pull me away from my duties and responsibilities towards my children and my husband and the members of my church? It's very tempting for Christian women to outsource all their responsibilities, but you must realize that God is calling you to the obedience of faith. As single Christian women, I want you to be aware of these challenges that you may face in the future. And trust me, you will need a godly head to take the lead and bring some clarity. So sisters, how are you preparing yourself to prioritize your home? You know, God has given you mothers to learn domestic duties from. So learn them well. He's also given you several godly older women in the church to not just learn systematic theology from, but also how to fold your clothes to the glory of God. So consider spending a day a week learning from a married woman what it looks like to manage a household. You know, here's another text that highlights your role and your chief domain of ministry. 
Turn to 1 Timothy 2.15. 1 Timothy 2.15. Here, Paul is arguing that women should not teach and exercise authority in the church. And he gives us two reasons for this. One positive and one negative. Positively, he says, because Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is the order of creation. And then negatively, because Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. It doesn't mean that Adam did not sin. Paul is saying, look at the role reversal that happened at the fall. This was because of satanic deception. Adam stood silent while Eve did all the talking. This is what happens when God's order of leadership is repudiated. It brings damage and ruin. And then he says in verse 15, look at verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. If they, that's Christian women, continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, given the context, it's clear that Paul's not saying, ah, let's forget salvation by grace alone. Salvation is by having lots of babies. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about ordinary sanctification. What ordinary sanctification looks like for Christian wives and mothers. They will be saved, namely sanctified, through childbearing. That phrase Childbearing is a synecdoche. It's a figure of speech that uses a part to represent a whole. You know, like sometimes we say, I, I got a new set of wheels. I mean, I didn't get, just get wheels. I got a car. You understand what I'm talking about when I talk about wheels. So Paul expects us to understand what he means when he says childbearing. The phrase childbearing is a part that represents the whole. And the whole being what? The domestic sphere. God's intention for Christian wives and women is that their priority should be their homes, and he intends for them to grow in holiness, not by grasping after a role or chasing a role that God has not ordained for them, namely teaching and exercising authority in the church, but by accepting their divinely appointed role in the home, the whole of which is spoken of by that representative act of childbearing. Next look at 1 Timothy 5.14, chapter 5. Verse 14, 1 Timothy 5, 14. Here Paul talks about how young widows who have a poor witness in the community can change and have a godly witness instead. Here's what he says. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Sounds like Titus 2, 5, doesn't it? Working at home so that the word of God may not be reviled. You know, this phrase, manage their households, can be translated as house rulers or house despots. What does that tell you? House rulers, right? Well, this tells you that this is mainly where God intends a wife and woman to rule and subdue and exercise dominion. She is the queen of her home and a hard-working one at that. Sisters, do you have a heart that is centered on the home? That's what you will need in order to glorify God in a Christian marriage. Your heavenly father brought order out of chaos and made it hospitable for the first humans. Imitate God as his beloved daughters. You know, the home is where most of your ministry will be as a married woman. To instruct your children, to make it a haven of love and service, to minister to the needs of the saints, to create an environment for discipling other women, to train women what it looks like to clean and decorate, to arrange and cook, 
to set a schedule and manage a budget, think rightly about the home and your duties in the home. Finally, number four, think biblically about your emotions and grow in self-control. Think biblically about your emotions and grow in self-control. See, this is what it means to walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. This includes not gratifying and entertaining sinful emotions. Sisters, you are called by God's grace to rule over your emotions and not be ruled by them. Proverbs 16 verse 32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he, let's say she, who, rule, who rules her spirit than she who takes a city. Or think about that Proverbs 31 woman. Proverbs 31, 25, strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. She's confident about the future because she trusts in the Lord and as a result is joyful in the present. She's not an emotional basket case. You know, I know the world tells you to follow your heart. But sisters, your heart is not a reliable guide. Don't, de don't be deceived like Eve. Get wisdom from the word, not from your emotions. You know, the Puritan Samuel Rutherford once famously said, Your heart is not the compass Christ saileth by. Isn't that wonderful? Your heart is not the compass Christ saileth by. We all near, need, need to hear that. All of us. You know, because your emotions are strong, they can preach lies to you in a way that may feel authentic. So think with me. How often have your emotions and cravings caused you to dream about a Prince Charming who caters to your every whim, never disagrees or disapproves of anything you say or ask for, and will always praise you for being you? That doesn't sound like a Christ-like man. That sounds like a spineless blind man who specializes in glorifying you. See, always ask yourself if your emotions and feelings are being informed by the word or by the world. Sisters, be watchful over your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says this. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So be in the habit of constantly asking yourself, what does God want me to feel about this situation? You know, if people are ministering to you and they are caring for you, and yet somehow in the midst of all of that you feel lonely and unloved, your emotions are not lining up with reality. The right response ought to be gratitude and comfort and rejoicing. You know, your emotions are a doorway to what's really going on in your heart. It will tell you what you really want, what you really value, what you really believe, and who you think you are. So don't just accept your emotions as true and righteous, but always measure them against God's word. Sisters, very often our emotions lie to us, so be careful and learn how to grow in self-control and watchfulness in this area. Learn from the psalmist who preaches truth to his emotions Psalm 42, 5 to 6, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? 
And then he preaches truth to himself, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You know, both now and when you are married, you will be tempted to excuse your sin simply because you feel a particular way. You may be tempted to justify your cranky attitude or sharp words simply because you have a physical trial. You know, if a husband yelled at his wife simply because he was suffering from an intense headache, would we excuse that sin? No, we wouldn't. That's precisely the situation that God has ordained for that man to learn to exercise Christ-like behavior. And so similarly, when you're managing a home and taking care of children, you will encounter many situations that are demanding on you physically. And it'll cause your emotions to run amok. Your emotions will preach lies to you about God and His purposes and your children and your husband. So grow in your ability to identify what your emotions are saying about your heart. Identify sinful desires. Speak the truth of God's word to it. Don't suppress them or ignore them. Evaluate them and apply the comfort of God's word to them and reorient them for His glory. Flee from those things that feed sinful emotions. If you find your sinful emotions like covetous longings or jealousy sort of being strengthened by romantic movies or things that you see on social media, if it has that effect on you, avoid them for the sake of your own emotional health. You're honoring Christ. If you desire to be a godly helper, then you must ask the Lord for emotional self-control and grow in it. This is important for you as a Christian woman now and later as a wife and mother. Learn to exercise self-control under physical discomfort now so that you can be prepared for the future. And if you're wondering, what's an example of an emotionally challenging discomfort in which I can learn to exercise self-control? Well, sisters, God in His wisdom has given you a bodily trial every month, hasn't He? It comes like clockwork. How are you growing in your ability to control your emotions and honor Christ during those times? Remember that God's grace is sufficient for you in every situation. Your Savior is more than enough for all your needs and His power is made perfect in your weakness. As one author has so aptly put it, bodily problems are not powerful enough to make us sin or keep us from living by faith. We have a glorious Savior. Sisters, growing in emotional strength like every other aspect of our sanctification takes time. It takes time and intentional discipleship. So work hard, but work with thankfulness and hope. Remember that you are precious in your Savior's eyes and He will lead you and strengthen you and grow you in grace. Sisters, your ministry in this congregation is invaluable and I'm so grateful for your lives. I'm thankful that you are not afraid to share your struggles. I know you well enough that some of you struggle with waiting, with waiting. So let me exhort you as your pastor who has a deep affection for you. Trust in the Lord who is sovereign over your life, and trust that He has ordered it well. Trust in His timing. Trust in His wisdom. Offer a heart of gratitude to Him. And pray that He will not just prepare you, but prepare the man whom He has ordained for you. I know it's tempting to jump in and take the lead to initiate a relationship, but if you're looking for a Christ-like man who leads and takes initiative, be patient. Be patient. 
you know, God does not withhold any good thing from his daughters, from his saints. Your life situation as it is now, he has ordained for his glory and for your eternal good. Believe that and pursue Christ with all de devotion. Don't second guess his intentions for you. Sisters, if you want to marry a Christ-like man, ask yourself, would that Christ-like man want to marry you? So fix your eyes on Christ, and he will transform you with his love. You are his treasured possession. Entrust yourself to your Savior and find your rest in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your transforming grace that comes to us in our Savior. We thank you, O Lord, for your Spirit who applies all his saving blessings to our lives. Lord, we pray that we would gaze upon our Savior's glory as we meditate and study his word, that we would be transformed into his likeness. And so, Lord, we pray that our lives, both men and women, would honor you, that we would trust in your sovereign wisdom, that we would come to you in prayer with our needs, and that we would cultivate hearts of thankfulness and contentment. Oh Lord, would you be glorified in our midst. Build your church for your glory. In Christ's name we pray.